This is the Kevin Simpson Show, expert insight and analysis from the industry's top investment professionals. If you'd like a deeper understanding of today's markets, this is the show for you. This is the Kevin Simpson Show, and our guest today is my very good friend, Gary Kaminsky. Gary, thanks for being here. Great to be here, Kevin. And as always, my co-host, Mr. Jay Coulter. Uh, thanks, Kevin. Listen, I'm excited to have Gary on your show because I got to tell you, I used to work for him 20 years ago when we were both at Newberger Berman and Lehman Brothers. For anybody who possibly doesn't know who Gary is, after Lehman Brothers, he did a stint at Morgan Stanley, but where he's most widely known is as 30 years as a guest host on CNBC. In fact, little known fact, he was one of the first five original co-hosts on Squawk Box. He also hosted his own show, uh, The Strategy Session on CNBC. Today, he's a senior advisor for a fintech company out of Colorado called Tiffin. Gary, great to see you again. Great to see you, Jay. And you didn't work for me. You know we worked together. It was a great time. Uh, and what was most rewarding, as you remember, Jay, was the fact that we really broke down a lot of walls. And uh, there's nothing better than, uh, you know, blowing up some uh, uh, misperceptions out there in the financial services industries. And it was great doing it together. It was. It was one of the more fun times in my career, for sure. If this was 30 years ago, Jay, were you seven when you were working with Gary? I mean, how is that possible? <laughs> it was 20 years ago. <laughs> so I was 17. All right. Even better. <laughs> well, if you talk about uh, Gary's history with CNBC, you know, I think for sure, uh, Strategy Session was one of the best shows they've ever had. You know, as a fan watching it, it was certainly one of my favorite shows on television, not just on CNBC. But that might even be a great place to start. Gary, I, I know we, we've, we've talked a lot off mic and in, in different conversations, but maybe some stories that are clean for public uh, consumption. But talking a little bit about your days at CNBC would be probably the most fun that we could have on today's episode. Yeah, well, you know, Kevin, it, I guess let's start with how did I end up there? Because a lot of people say, well, you know, you were young. Uh, at the time, I was uh, co-managing the private bank at Cowan & Company. That was when Cowan was a partnership, uh, well-known for its technology and healthcare, a capital markets business. And I was a young guy, uh, and all of a sudden, I showed up there on Squawk Box. So, you know, how did that come to be? Well, I had started my career when I got out of business school at a small hedge fund, just to kind of date myself, JRO Associates at the time in 1989 had close to 110 million in capital. That's it, 110 million. And was considered um, for the Wall Street firms, it was considered a tier one hedge fund, meaning that Goldman Sachs, back in those days, Drexel Burnham and Kidder Peabody and Solomon Brothers, they considered JRO to be one of their biggest clients. And the managing partner of JRO, just a brilliant uh, technology investor, uh, visionary guy, Mark Howard, was very close with the, at that time, legendary financial journalist, Dan Dorfman, who many people remember. Um, and Dan, who had really kind of, if you think pre-social media, the way the world worked, um, Dan wrote a column for USA Today, uh, which had stock tips and thematic investing ideas. But he also was doing a segment on CNN. We're going to sort of date ourselves here. He was doing a segment on CNN in the middle of the day. And it was a time that when you think back to the world today, what's going on with Reddit and social media and streaming and cable television and all the financial uh, access that everybody has. Dan was the only one that the general public could sit there 
and turn on the TV at 12 noon and put the volume up to actually hear what he would say. And just to kind of give people again a perspective, if he made a comment about IBM, maybe a contract or getting a contract, or losing a contract, and he had an idea, they would have to hold trading on the New York Stock Exchange for maybe five to seven minutes to get the order imbalances together because there was so much of an interest at that time that the market wasn't prepared for the type of buy orders or sell orders that would come in instantaneously. So when Dan was recruited by CNBC after the merger with FNN, and uh, he went over to CNBC to bring his shtick and his, uh, his, his, um, his segments over there, they had asked Dan, can you suggest any people that you might think could help us create squat box would know what it was like um, on a hedge fund desk, on a sell side Wall Street desk early in the morning. We'd like to replicate that for the general public. Dan was nice enough to suggest me as we had, um, I had sourced him a lot of good uh, short stories back then. And uh, the rest was history. I showed up there with the legendary Mark Haynes, the first week of squat box. Said to Mark, what do we do? He said, I have no idea. Just come out on this set and we did it. And um, the rest is history. <laughs> Run into the fire for sure. First of all, Jay, you don't know what a squawk box is because you're too young to remember that. And then if you think about the Dan Dorfman effect, Gary, I remember sitting at the desk and he'd come on. And if it wasn't IBM, but just some small cap, weird biotech stock, yep. every phone in the entire office, every phone in the entire firm would start ringing and the retail uh, desks would be lo looking at what this stock was and it was a, a, just a fun phenomenon and you start taking bets to see you know how long until the phone would start ringing after you're watching him on TV. I think we had one TV for the whole office. Maybe there were 30 guys. Uh, at least we had two Quotrons. Yeah. And what's, what's interesting is that if you think about, again, what's happening today with social media and the idea of you know, leveling the playing field. And we've heard a lot about that recently in terms of Reddit and Robinhood and all. You know, Dan's whole objective um, was he felt that he had a responsibility to give the mom and pop investor the same, the same information that, and they weren't even called institutional investors at that time, but that was sort of his, um, his mission statement was, I want to try to bring that information to the public. And you and I have talked about it off camera and we've talked about it, uh, Jay, you and I have talked about it over the years with clients, but it's important to remember that that was Dan Dorfman's mission statement. Financial media, despite what the public may think, their mission statement is not to give investment advice, nor is it to give um, uh, specific asset allocation models, much like anything else. It's a information genre but it's entertainment. And that's why it's always so important to remember that the, the daily discussion that goes on at Fox Business or even Bloomberg or CNBC as it relates to the stock market and the bond market and private equity, they've got to give information, but it has to be laid out in a thematic way of entertainment. And for financial journalism, entertainment is two things, fear and greed. Um, and if you go and you watch the stories during the day, there's going to be a lot of things about how much money you can make in a certain security or in a certain space. And that's obviously the greed factor. Or these things have run up so fast and you better get out now. You better listen because we're going to give you a warning. Um, and that's the greed factor. 
and uh, the fear factor. And so the entertainment aspect of it, what they call in, in, in journalism, the arcs are always going to be between fear and greed. And that's not to say that there's not good information. There is good information, but it's important to always remember as an investor um, that it's entertainment at the end of the day. There was nobody smoother at making those transitions than Mark Haynes when you would sit as a viewer and watch. I mean, cool as a cucumber, no matter what the futures were doing or how markets were trading in the morning, he could go from those conversations and, and just make you feel like uh, you, you had somebody helping to steer the ship. Yeah, we were very, very close. And uh, so I'll share, you know, just a, a little tidbit. You know, Mark, um, he was uh, he was a big smoker, cigarette smoker. You know, um, he probably went through like 40 cigarettes, two packs a day, unfortunately. So, you know, he would run out during every commercial break. We were in the studio at the time, um, which was in a, res a, a commercial office building in Englewood Cliffs in New Jersey. So, first of all, Mark never wore actual pants. So we're all living in the Zoom world now. So you don't know, you know, what I've got below here. But Mark would always come in the summertime. He'd wear a pair of shorts, a pair of top sliders. He would come into the makeup room maybe five minutes before the show would start at 5.55 a.m., throw on a shirt, a tie, sport jacket, they do his hair. And he was wearing, in the wintertime, sweatpants and topsiders. In the summertime, shorts and topsiders. And the minute that show ended, that shirt came off, that tie came off, and he was, he, was, he was out. You know, he was watching his kids play sports. He was very enthusiastic about that. But every commercial break, he would run out, have a cigarette break, out in the, uh, like in the lobby, not the lobby, like the, the outside doors to get to the outside of the building. And it would be like, the clock would be there and it'd be like, all right, 27, 26, 25. And he would come in and the viewer never knew. He would be in there five seconds before the break came back and boom, that was it. And just about every single break, he was out the door. And he also used to eat cold cereal in the morning, put it below the desk, sometimes take it out when they were doing like a shot like this, and that might be, um, so you might have like a four shot and Kernan would be blabbing on saying something and Mark would take out the cereal, raisin bran, Cheerios, whatever, and he'd be eating. <coughs> and then the stage manager would, you know, give him the, give him the look and boom, and that would go away. He was, he was an amazing uh, character and completely true to himself till the end. So Gary, during your run at CNBC, you had your own show, The Strategy Session, very popular show. What was the genesis of that? And then what were some of your favorite moments about producing that show? Well, uh, I'll make that long story short. When I left uh, Newburgh Berman and uh, Jay, I had, um, I had garden leave. Uh, for those that are not familiar with that term and that are not uh, uh, Wall Street uh, um, regulars, you know, basically in order to leave, uh, I had to agree that I wouldn't compete, I wouldn't solicit clients, and so thus garden leave, and I was sitting on the beach. And You know, when I came home and I told my wife, I guess the good news was I was leaving Lehman before it blew up. The bad news was I had nothing to do. My wife said, you know, you got to get the hell out of the house. Uh, my three sons were now 28, uh, 26, or 21. You know, obviously, this was uh, 12 years ago. Um, she was like, you know, I said, good news, bad news. Good news is I'm getting out of Lehman. What's the bad news? Well, the bad news is I don't have a job. She said, well, you better find something to do. Um, so CNBC had asked me, uh, the brilliant and legendary Susan Krakauer, uh, who was the executive producer, senior VP of program, who had put together, created uh, uh, Mad Money, uh, Options Actions, Fast Money, 
Um, really one of the uh, brilliant um, people behind all of the talent and creativity over there. Um, we had met, I obviously had had a relationship and they asked me, you know, would I consider uh, doing something on a full-time basis over there? And having the big mouth that I had, I said something along the lines of, um, you know, I'm an investor. I'm not a trader. I'm not even a good trader. Um, a lot of what you do, a lot of the program is not even geared towards, you know, what I can be value added. And Susan being Susan, you know, called me into her office, said something like, I guess she's going to watch this. So, you know, she'll, she'll probably want to come on, Jay, and say, she's not, she didn't say, it. she said, you know, sit the hell down and tell me what kind of show you'd like to put together. And David Faber and I, we've been close friends for, I'm going to date us now, probably 35 years. Um, obviously, Dave, you know, um, uh, one of the originals over there, he and I had a vision where much like Swapbox was trying to replicate what took place in a morning meeting, we want a strategy session to be the show in the middle of the day where you had to turn the volume on. And the objective was we wanted to talk to the professionals, the investment advisors, the portfolio managers, the asset managers, and we wanted it to be a peer-to-peer -peer discussion. So instead of having people come on uh, recommending stocks, you know, we would much rather have a private equity investor come on and tell us what type of investments they were making, or capital markets. Um, and we had, uh, you know, some of the things that stand out in my mind, after the financial crisis, when uh, General Motors was restructured and started to um, uh, have the post restructuring trade, we had the head of capital markets who advised from Morgan Stanley you know, on our air live when the thing started to trade. That was never had happened before. Um, we had uh, the CEOs of all of the firms, um, Gorman and John Mack when he was there and um, uh, Lloyd Blankfein. We would have the CEOs of the various firms come on and it wasn't necessarily to talk about the story de jour, the story of the day, but rather really to talk about strategy, how they were running the businesses. You know, the best memory I have is, uh, thankfully, when um, after the financial crisis and after there had been a lot of real, I guess, uh, general public negative publicity about Goldman Sachs, I got the call one day. I was going down to Goldman Sachs as uh, capital markets editor at CNBC to, um, and at the time, Goldman really wasn't that much in the public, but I had worked with them and um, they gave me the opportunity to come down to one of their conferences. And I was just coming down there for a conference to, uh, I don't even remember what, it, it might've been a technology conference. One of their conferences, we were gonna cover the conference. And the night before I got a call from um, their media people to say, hey, how would you like to have Lloyd Blankfein on live? First post financial crisis um, interview. And um, that was definitely something I'll always remember. First of all, it was very, uh, gracious of Lloyd to do. And the amazing thing about him was, if you remember the Muppets, remember there was some uh, language in some emails about clients being Muppets. And, um, everybody was like, oh, when Goldman speaks, are they going to you know, refer, talk about how they refer to clients as Muppets? And the, the nice thing about Lloyd is that he said to me, come, we're going to do it. I think it was like an hour uninterrupted live on air. And he said, you could talk about, we could talk about anything. There's no subject off limits. Um, so, you know, I've got tremendous respect for that type of an approach. And, you know, I could probably name 15 or so things, but that's certainly one of the things that stands out. And um, we had a great run with the program and uh, uh, David and I remain extremely close today. 
And, um, you know, it was just a great experience. Excellent. You know, that's a great opportunity to transition here. And let's talk investing in markets. So we're recording this in March of 2021. Some people could say the valuations have been stretched. We've had a crazy 12-month period. And let's go back to when you were managing money during the internet bubble. Because where financial advisors are struggling today is, what do you do when you're looking at a market the way it looks today? And it feels similar to 1999. Gary, what was your approach in 1999 to managing money? And how did you manage through the crisis? Well, again... We have limited time here, so let's just be real brief about 99J. As you know, um, we were able to sell, thankfully, um, we were able to sell a lot of um, technology stocks very early on, which, by the way, was not a great thing in late 99. Late 99, you know, clients, uh, you know, at, at one point I thought the business was over because clients told us we were dumb, we were stupid, we didn't understand, um, it didn't matter. Internet traffic was going to double every month until uh, eternity. If you remember <clears> the <throat> companies like Exodus and JDS Uniphase and Global Crossing, many of these companies don't even exist today. Um, so we had sold a lot of technology stocks and it was really, and I told the story to you recently, um, it wasn't, you know, any crystal ball. It was attending the Soundview Technology Conference down in Boca Raton in late uh, 99, and there was two presentations simultaneously. Uh, IBM, head of uh, storage and mainframes, in one room, in one ballroom. A nice gentleman named Joseph Strauss was on TV every other day, CEO of JDS Uniphase, in another room. They were standing out the hallway, in the hallway, in the vestibule, out in the courtyard, to listen to JDS Uniphase. Not one person, maybe three. Probably three people were in the IBM uh, mainframe uh, session, the breakout session. And we just felt that it was a time where one in three publicly traded mutual funds found a reason to own JDS Uniface. Um, and so people were changing their charters because everybody's closet indexing and they were worried they weren't participating in the names. And so we decided at that time as a team um, to reduce what was taxable accounts, uh, you know, very low cost Cisco, GMUs, Intel, uh, AOL. And uh, we were chastised for quite some time in late 99, especially Christmas time and early, uh, the early couple of months of 2000. But it, it obviously led to, you know, great long-term performance for the portfolios uh, for much of that decade as a result of recognizing that there had been a mania. Now, it's a little different today. So let's just transition to where things are today. Yes, the markets had quite a run. But if you think about what the Federal Reserve has done or what they've said they've done as we sit here and we take this literally the one year to the day of when the world shut down. You know, it was one year ago today that was the beginning of, of, of what we've had over the last so months. The unprecedented amount of uh, stimulus and money and easy money that's been put into the system, not just here, but around the world in order to stabilize economies has really provided quite a backdrop for multiple expansion. Now, you might not like it. You may say it breaks your discipline, um, but a flexible money manager has to accept the fact that sometimes the markets are going to trade at above the ROIs, the, the return on investment that you might be trying to model um, based on cash flows or based on dividend returns. And you have to go through those cycles and recognize that 
timing the market is impossible. Okay, if you were smart enough to sell last year everything on March 6th, you know, were you smart enough to buy everything back April 1st? And if whoever says they, that they are or that they were is full of it. That's complete bullshit. So you've got to stay with your discipline. Uh, maybe we should let Kevin talk a little bit about his discipline and, you know, why I really like the style. Because if you stay through the disciplines in times like 99 or in, in, in times like uh, we've just witnessed over the last 12 months, uh, without the dispersion of trying to just chase for a short period of time something that's working, um, you don't have to worry about the noise, the noise that's associated with the outside dynamics that are affecting the businesses. Remember, you know, Joe Lassa, Jay, you know, uh, my mentor and one of the great legendary investors, you know, you can't forget that when you buy a share, when you buy a piece of paper, which is what you're basically buying when you're buying stock, you're buying a piece of a business, a business that hopefully generates positive free cash flow, and then they could do something with it. They could grow the business, they could return it to shareholders, dividends, distributions, they could buy back stock, they could do nothing with it, you know, which is probably the worst use of capital. And as a steward of as investing, you just have to remember in the times of craziness, what's the business? What's the growth, pro growth prospects? What are they doing with the cash that they're generating? And how's that going to benefit me three to five years down the road? Yeah. So Kevin, looking back on how you were managing money in 1999, going into the crisis, through the crisis, and then looking at it as a lens that you use today, what, what are your thoughts on approaching money in this type of market? You know, you make those comparisons in terms of things being frothy, but frothy is a lot different than something just so ridiculously overvalued. And much like Gary, you know, we were writing covered calls on things, and I can recall many people screaming, yelling, just completely distraught that we had a stock like JDS Uniphase called away. And I could have conversations that were a little bit heated saying, you know, well, you just made 30% on your money. He said, yeah, but if you didn't write that stupid covered call, my wife's up 80% on her shares. <laughs> like you can't even spell JDS Uniphase. You don't even know what you're talking about or what it does. And when Gary, when you were talking, I was thinking about so many people being critical of Warren Buffett saying how, you know, just lost he was in 1999 over the hill. You know, he was probably one of the few guys with Charlie in that room actually watching the IBM conference at the time. But if you buy companies and you invest in companies that make money, have profits, you have a, a little bit better chance for for long, you know, a long longer success um, in in this business than being a trader. But the other difference, Jay, between '99 and today is that depending upon the economist you talk to, there's four to five trillion dollars on the sideline. So that's retail money that hasn't made its way into the stock market. In 1999, there wasn't a penny that wasn't in that market, and pretty much for with very few exceptions, like Gary Buffett and you know, maybe there's some of the dumb things we did by like buying Merck. Remember somebody yelling at me for that. But the, the thought process is we're, we're still not at any capitulation bubble. We're not looking at the massive correction till that money finds its way into the market. Yeah, Jay, let me just add one thing that's pretty timely just in terms of this week because of what's happened, you know, between the, and it's almost hilarious to talk about the spike in interest rates, you know, the move up from, <laughs> 1.2% on the 10-year to 1.55. But it's important to remember that the equity market, and now I could say the fixed income market as well, are correctly pricing in a massive recovery later this year. Um, 
you know, I spoke uh, earlier this week with the CEO of one of the major airlines, uh, who's a friend. I mean, look, everyone knows, uh, you don't have to be a financial analyst, CFA, to know that the amount of pent up demand that's in the system right now is unprecedented. None of us have lived through anything like what we're going to experience in terms of travel and leisure and, and, and restaurants and concerts and sporting events. I mean, my wife said to me the other day, um, I'm even going to come to a jet game with you in September at the Meadowlands. And I was just like shocked about that. I said, really? So like, yeah, I'm going to go to, you know, she has three sons with jet fans. And I was like kind of blown away. She said she wanted to go to a, to a jet game, which is a whole nother story. But um, the market price is at it. And so it's important to remember that while we'll probably have a short term, uh, even now, crawl up as economic numbers come out and some of the demand numbers come out, and maybe we move to 2% on the 10-year. But everything always overshoots. Kevin, you know this. And later this year, when people realize, okay, that, yeah, we've got the economic recovery, the reopening that we wanted, a lot of the deflationary pressures that were um, hitting this market and hitting this economy last year or the year prior, 18 and 19, that's not going to go away. You know, a lot of the manufacturing in Asia is going to continue to export deflation. And so interest rates will probably back down. Uh, if I'm going to make a forecast sometime later this year, when people realize, yes, there's been this massive economic recovery, but the deflationary pressures that existed are still there. And so it's important, again, with a long term perspective to not get to not change your strategy, especially your long term asset allocation based on the short term noise that you're going to hear for the next call it four to six weeks. Excellent. Gary, I appreciate you coming on the Kevin Simpson show here for Viewers, if you would like to learn more about capital wealth planning, please visit capitalwealthplanning.com and subscribe to the show on our YouTube channel for timely updates. Gary, can we have you back on after the Jets have their draft? Maybe bring your <laughs> wife. Definitely. Well, we've got to get we've got to decide what we're going to do with that uh, with that quarterback of us, Sam Donald, first. So we will definitely have a Jet update. And guys, it was great. Uh, look forward to coming back on the show. Uh, great to see you, Kevin, and uh, great to see you again, Jack. Thank you, my friend. This message does not constitute an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to purchase securities through CWP Advisory Services. Investments are not guaranteed and involves risk of loss. The views and opinions expressed in this message are those of investment professionals made at the time this content was recorded, are not necessarily the views and opinions of CWP, and may change in time without notification. For additional information about CWP, visit CWP's or the SEC's website for a copy of our ADV disclosure brochure and form CRS.